Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As for this army, it has much disorder, and I believe that there are people within it possessed by the devil, who take pleasure in setting fires everywhere, that I will be much relieved to be away from it. There is a distinction between friend and enemy, but they ruin one as well as the other. Frederick V of the Palatinate, while on campaigns in 1622. Frederick V had been busier than ever in his correspondence to James I of England. Since 1624 began, he had approached the idea of greater English involvement on the continent with his English emissary, Johann Joachim von Rusdorf. Rusdorf was of the opinion that James would only act on the continent to restore Frederick to his palatine by force if French support could be ensured. The situation, Rusdorf assured Freddie, was the same in Paris. Neither France nor England was willing to act and hire the command of Ernst of Mansfield without sure guarantees of joint cooperation. James I, whose foreign policy was now concerned with maintaining a Spanish friendship while finding a way to bring his own son-in-law back to power, stalled for time continuously, frustrating French attempts as well as Dutch attempts to solicit a guarantee of English moves. Going even against his very parliament, which he was meant to heed the advice of, James seems to have remained convinced that only by continuing to be on good terms with Spain could England pursue its policies with security. Brennan Purcell, in his book The Winter King, provides the greatest account of Frederick's diplomatic campaign for allies in Northwest Europe. He writes, quote, Throughout the autumn of 1624, Frederick tried to harness the various notions in favour of war on his behalf. Despite the lateness of the campaigning season, he continued to apply pressure in England for the execution of Mansfield's commission, especially for the delivery of the monthly payments that had been allotted to the Count. In October, Frederick suddenly made a trip to Berlin, presumably to bolster the new resolve of his brother-in-law, Elector George William, to abandon his neutrality and to join the Palatine cause. In the summer, the Brandenburg Elector had dispatched his advisor, Christian von Bellen, 
to Denmark, Sweden, the Dutch Republic and France to add to the weight of the alliance plans. End quote. However, once Frederick returned in November, it was clear that none of the promised resources had reached Mansfield, and thus his hopes for a reclamation of the Palatinate remained mere hopes. James I was blamed by Frederick once again for his failure to act in his interests, and criticised his father-in-law's cozying up to the Spanish as naive and fruitless in the given circumstances. When James appeared to relent, just as Louis XIII of France approved the commission of Ernst of Mansfield for six months, James then added a further clause into the agreement, which insisted that Mansfield's theoretical army would be banned from harming either Isabella's domains or the forces under the command of Spain. As Purcell explains, quote, This codicil appalled Frederick. The restriction made no sense to him, given the fact that Spanish forces had been the first to attack Palatine lands and people and he feared that James's alteration would lead to a change in the French commission for Mansfield. End quote. In fairness to James, though, his diplomatic efforts in 1624 in favour of his son were some of the strongest yet, and it seems that at this stage, that though he had become convinced of the impossibility of a strong Anglo-Spanish friendship, he also recognised the difficulties of an Anglo-Spanish war. Purcell notes that, quote, Diplomatic efforts to establish an alliance were pursued with greater energy than the military campaign to wrest the Palatine away from Spanish and Bavarian hands. As usual, King James was more supportive of the former than the latter. In September he wrote to the Lower Saxon Circle and the Count of East Friesland to procure aid for Mansfield. The King dispatched ambassadors to Denmark, Sweden, France, Savoy, Venice and the Netherlands to enlist support for his measures to recover the Palatinate. Frederick established contacts with each of these ambassadors, and he used England's mobilisation to enhance his information of affairs and to bolster his own diplomatic efforts to recruit other powers with interest in an anti-Habsburg war. End quote. The most important procession of ambassadors to Frederick was that which ventured to Denmark and northern Germany, led by Sir Robert Ansruther, who happened to be a confidant of Rusdorf. Rusdorf was thus able to keep Frederick exceptionally well informed of the goings-on, and progress of Ansruther's mission. It promised to be the most fruitful of its kind sent to Denmark yet. Ansruther, noting the failures of similar expeditions before, removed all mention of a grand Protestant alliance against the Habsburgs, and instead focused on the idea that the goal of the campaign was, quote, The peace of Christendom the particular preservation of states, and the political maintaining of every prince and state in their own sovereignty, leaving the work of faith to God, the one lord of that kingdom. End quote. Ansruther had found Christian IV of Denmark surprisingly belligerent, but suspicious about Mansfield, who had gained a somewhat unsavoury reputation after his years of plundering in Germany. Ansruther did manage to send the following note to his friend Rusdorf, who immediately sent it on to Frederick. Though the king, Christian, indeed professes ideas about Protestant defence, he remains, at this instance, unwilling to commit his wealthy country to war against the Habsburgs, whose power he considers impossible to overcome. There is a sense of tension within the Danish court, which one cannot quite define, though it seems certain that the campaigns of the Habsburgs in the empire have much to do with their being on edge. Ansruther continued to Berlin, where the Brandenburg elector George William approved heartily the ideas of an anti-Habsburg campaign, sending his trusty statesman Bellin, who we encountered earlier, to Copenhagen and Stockholm and Paris in order to echo Frederick's moves. 
These efforts met the attention of John George, the Elector of Saxony, who was far less enthusiastic about their prospects. Having only recently recognised the Duke of Bavaria as the legit holder of the Palatine Electorate, he refused utterly to take part in another attempt to plunge Germany back into war. Frederick could still be positive about the future though, because it appeared entirely possible that an anti-Habsburg alliance would materialise within the coming years. All it took, Frederick believed, was consistent lobbying and a campaign to persuade his potential allies as to the danger of Habsburg designs. Though Mansfield's anemically sponsored campaign began in early 1625, it faltered almost instantly, ending in disgrace in late March that year as its forces had been worn down by disease and desertion. They hadn't even left the Netherlands. Frederick would surely have lamented, though he received word of a death in his immediate family which signalled the end of an era in English foreign policy. James I of England and the 6th of Scotland died on the 27th of March 1625, and with him fell the greatest barrier to war against the Habsburgs on behalf of the Palatinate. As the fortunes of war for the Habsburgs had improved, so had the tone of Frederick's plea for aid changed. Initially, it seemed as though Frederick was trying to orchestrate a Protestant versus Catholic conflict, with England trumping the cause of the former against Ferdinand to upheld the latter. As time went by though, and as Frederick lost his official lands and title, he simply called for an international league to take down the Habsburg influences wherever they existed. Brennan Purcell explains the origins of this policy, and how it manifested itself into the Hague Alliance. Quote, from April to December 1625, the predominant goal was to assemble a coalition of all enemies of the Habsburgs, irrespective of confession, and to unite them behind the Palatine cause. At the core of the alliance would be the three main Protestant kingdoms of Denmark, England and Sweden, supported by the Dutch Republic and various Protestant principalities of northern Germany, not failing to include France, Savoy and the Venetian Republic if possible too, and Bethlen Gabor. The goal of the coalition was to wage a dynastic, not a religious, war for a constitutional end. Members were to fight the Habsburgs on all sides in order to effect Frederick's restoration to his former place in the empire which, it was claimed, would put a stop to Habsburg's designs for a universal monarchy over the empire and Europe and to save traditional German constitutional liberties." End quote. The challenges of first orchestrating and then co-opting all the various elements into this Hague alliance were obvious. Frederick scolded Charles I of England, the new King of England, as much as he dared for changing his policies with France so much, because they discouraged Swedish and Danish cooperation and pulled the common interest of the four parties apart. He reminded Charles that the recent debacle involving Mansfield in the Netherlands had reflected very badly both on England's military reputation but also on Frederick's honour, since Mansfield mobilised in his name. In the summer of 1625, Frederick noted that the focus turned to Christian of Denmark, but he wanted the Hague lines to be formalised and for each member to have processed the assistance they had committed in words. Frederick was well aware that time was of the essence. The planned imperial diet, where Ferdinand was to address those present and call for peace, was set for August 1625, though Frederick certainly doubted that Ferdinand desired peace at all. 
and believed instead that the Diet was called purely to approve, in final terms, the transfer of Freddy's titles to Max, as well as whatever else Ferdinand had cooked up. Ferdinand, in fact, was cooking up a plan for a compromise whereby Freddy would have the Spanish-occupied part of the Palatine, but that Max would still have Freddy's title and vote until he died. Freddy still had to admit that he was wrong and unconditionally placate himself at the Emperor's feet, of course, so this attractive little offer was turned down hastily by Frederick in The Hague. Purcell notes Frederick's reply, quote, In responding to these invitations, he included lengthy arguments about the illegality and unconstitutionality of the Emperor's proceedings, from the Imperial ban to the impending Diet of Deputies. He tried to convince them of his own righteousness and of the Emperor's desire to smother them in war and ruin. End quote. Unable to achieve his goals through words, yet again, in this instance, Frederick put his hopes for restitution in the creation of an alliance, this time the Hague Alliance, that anti-Habsburg league of both Protestant and Catholic powers. Purcell explains, though, that this proposed league began to demonstrate problems and cracks in its unity, even before it had been properly created. Quote, Catholic powers fell rapidly out of the equation. France failed to assist Savoy against the Spanish and would soon abandon the Valta line. After James's death, Venice quickly backed out of giving any money to Mansfield, despite previous arrangements, because it was clear that he would not contribute to the League of Lyon. Venice expressed its sympathy to Charles I and Frederick, but because of the prevailing threats to its own security, a gift of merely £200 was offered to Frederick's agent. Nevertheless, not every basis for hope vanished. In July, Frederick heard that a French army 21,000 strong was approaching the German border, and he hoped it would provide a diversion for the Habsburgs to the advantage of the King of Denmark. End quote. Frederick's hopes for a French army were unfounded, but his hopes for French aid were not. France's apparently sudden desire to support Frederick, seen in their support of Mansfield and willingness to cooperate with England, had much to do with who would come into political preeminence at this stage. In April 1624, Armand Jean de Plessis, otherwise known as Cardinal Richelieu, had joined Louis XIII's royal council. Over the summer, Richelieu and others like him began to make their presence felt in France. The Treaty of Compiègne was signed with the Dutch in which the French government committed themselves to support the Dutch war effort against Spain monetarily, right when the Dutch were at their most stretched, and when their usual ally England appeared indifferent thanks to James's policies. France also revived her alliance with Savoy and Venice. After particular Spanish interference in northern Italy persuaded Louis XIII that the Spanish friendship could not be relied upon. In August 1624, Richelieu had taken the reins of the French foreign ministry, and French forces occupied the Valtaline, that critical Italian stop along the Spanish road. And yet, French foreign policy was consistently at the mercy of its domestic problems at home. Huguenot and Devot conflict polarised French society and ensured that Richelieu was not able to properly persecute a coherent French policy. If he went against Spain, the pro-Catholic Devotes would mobilise French public opinion against him, and if he went the opposite direction, the Huguenots would retreat into their strongholds and conduct a ruinous guerrilla campaign against the shaky French central administration. The result of this deadlock was inaction after 1624. 
While Richelieu desired to balance France against Spain's influence in Europe, he recognised that France's affairs at home would have to be settled first. The fall of the Huguenot fortress of La Rochelle in 1628 was the realisation of this policy, and its success would transform France in the future. For now though, Frederick at least recognised he would have to look elsewhere. 1625 was thus the year that Frederick attended to further the burgeoning alliance between the English and Dutch, which formed the backbone of the Hague Alliance, and which, having repeated itself in history, had the greatest chance of continuing. Having been forced out of the continent in March, Mansfield was again tasked with leading a force against the Habsburgs thereafter. Though the Dutch wanted to use the proposed Allied force to relieve its besieged town of Breda, when it fell in June 1625, Mansfield was asked instead to remain in the Netherlands and await further instruction. The Treaty of Southampton was signed between England and the Dutch in September 1625, solidifying the two's defensive and offensive goals to reinstall Frederick of the Palatine and free the Netherlands from Spain. Frederick put much hope in this alliance, as he had built up a good reputation with the new stadtholder of the Netherlands, Frederick Henry, the military genius half-brother of Maurice of Orange, who had died in the months before. Frederick Henry had attended Freddy's wedding, and the two saw eye to eye on a number of issues, including the intertwined nature of the Dutch War with the Continental German War. Negotiations between the English and Dutch developed into a near romance, when the two endeavoured to send a fleet and a force to Cadiz in order to establish a kind of beachhead there. It didn't exactly go according to plan. Charles I of England was everything Frederick wanted and more in an English king. Charles not only attempted to mobilise popular opinion in England, but he also took very real steps to build a pro-Palatine alliance abroad, in line with the Hague alliance and the more solid one at Southampton between the Dutch and English. Charles sent declarations to Ferdinand and Max informing them that they had violated the constitution of the empire, and that they were responsible for the violence because of the incursion of Catholic and Habsburg and Spanish troops in the Palatine. In June, Charles elected to grant Christian of Denmark £30,000 a month, and Ansruther was sent to Copenhagen bearing the gift of 46000 An ambitious project was then set in motion, which was assigned three tasks. As Purcell notes, quote, destroy Spanish shipping, secure a foothold in that country, and capture the annual fleet, bringing precious metals from the Americas as it approached its destination. The mission was supposed to force the Spanish to sue for peace, and procure the Palatine's restoration as a concession to England, but a critical shortage of money crippled the venture." End quote. The plans of Charles here represented the first Anglo-Dutch military enterprise in decades, but it was to end in a fiasco at Cadiz in November 1625. Though Rusdorf had attempted to persuade Charles that an attack or landing in Germany would have been of far greater use, Charles maintained that the Spanish were to be attacked. 
The Parliament, that had been intended to approve these measures, instead debated religiously controversial issues like the decision to support Catholic France against its Huguenot problem rather than supporting the Huguenots. So, Charles dissolved that Parliament after two days. Nonetheless, Charles continued his support to Frederick V, which was seen as necessary in Parliament after years of James's hesitation. Indeed, perhaps the one thing that could be pointed to as a success for Frederick was the solidifying of the notions among the few powers opposed to Habsburg designs in Europe. The Hague Alliance was finally established in writing in December 1625, creating a block of opposition against the Habsburgs that involved Denmark, England and the Dutch. Almost immediately though, the Dutch ran into problems. Even during the stage of its negotiations, Purcell notes that, quote, Beyond the common cause, the three delegations for the Hague Alliance had conflicting agendas. The English wanted to be relieved of the £30,000 a month subsidy to Christian IV, yet they tried to procure declarations of war from Denmark and the Dutch against Spain and the Emperor. The Danes naturally wanted continued financial assistance for Christian's campaigns to restore peace in the Lower Saxon Circle without such declarations. The Dutch did not want to give Denmark any money at all. Despite these differences, negotiations proceeded quickly, and in the end, the delegations managed to agree to contain the Habsburgs, rescue German liberty, and, despite initial resistance from the Danish delegation, restore Frederick V to the Palatinate. The Duke of Buckingham and the Earl of Holland agreed, against instructions, to continue to pay 30000 a month to Christian IV, and the Dutch were supposed to contribute 5000 in return, Christian was to enlarge his army and execute the stated military objectives. Mansfield's army was to be joined with the Danes. Though Frederick's name did not appear in the treaty, the three powers agreed to settle no separate peace without incorporating him into the terms. End quote. By the end of 1625, the Hague Alliance promised the most concrete action plan in favour of Frederick's cause since the Elector and Winter King had retreated to the Hague. Perhaps his fortunes were improving after all. Denmark's eventual entry into the war against the Habsburgs had been the result of years of lobbying. So Frederick V of the Palatine believed. In February 1621 at Segeberg, a meeting of the primary Protestant potentates of Europe, including Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, failed to persuade Christian as to the need to invest his resources behind the faltering Protestant cause. Submit to the Emperor, Christian believed, and the constitution of the Empire will go easy on you for your mistakes. Then, dear Frederick, we can all go back to normal. But Ferdinand did not go easy on Frederick, and just as Frederick agreed to a temporary truce in August 1623, Christian was bombarded with pleas from the Lower Saxon Circle and their numerous concerns regarding Catholic encroachment all too near their lands. In 1624, Christian had borne witness to the unity and power of the Habsburgs, as Spain occupied its holdings east of France, and Ferdinand continued to increase his power and prestige in the empire. As Frederick's cause waned, eventually restricted to diplomatic rather than military campaigns, Christian appears to have abandoned his neutrality more and more. Once Ferdinand acted to first remove the Protestant presence in Bohemia, and then ostracise Frederick from the HRE rather than make attempts to reintegrate him into it, Christian grew to believe that the need for intervention was a genuine one. Denmark had fought Sweden as recently as 1613. 
and a settlement within that war provided Christian with a steady source of income through Swedish war reparations. A post-war Sweden joined the Dutch against Denmark diplomatically when an alliance was signed between the two in 1614. Olden Barnveldt, effectively the Dutch Prime Minister at the time, advised cooperation with Denmark's enemies in the hopes that it would reduce the cost of the sound tolls, Denmark's main source of revenue, and isolated in the Baltic. But these plans evaporated, first with Olden Barnveldt's death in 1618, and then with the resumption of the Dutch-Spanish War in 1621. These events persuaded the Dutch that political and military gains superseded economic ones, and the Dutch began to occupy themselves with a new objective, that of enmeshing Denmark within the anti-Habsburg alliance. They were held in these efforts by Frederick, of course, but also by the Danish king's own objectives. With Sweden always on his mind, Christian IV of Denmark also had an eye on the land immediately south of his country. He already possessed Holstein, and thus a seat in the imperial diet, but Christian viewed the smaller duchies and bishoprics as prime appointment for his sons, who were beginning to branch out themselves. Almost as compensation for Swedish expansion then, Christian sought extended rights over the lands south of his kingdom, which would infer newfound prestige and security on him. In order to secure them, he kept a watchful eye on the unfolding situation in the empire and Europe, avoiding direct conflict but secretly lending vast sums of money to Frederick and the Dutch from his own personal fortune. And they had to come from his own pocket, because the Danish council remained utterly opposed to intervention in the empire and was at pains to provide a clear line of demarcation between the actions of the king and the actions of the state, represented by the will of the council. They attempted to present all apparently interventionist schemes of Christian as the will of Christian, not of Denmark in general, so as to paint their king in a solitary, adventurous and slightly comical light. But these efforts by the Danish council proved fruitless when in November 1623 the Swedish king met with Frederick's court preacher and primary advisor, Ludwig Camerarius. During the two's negotiations it was agreed that Sweden would attack the east of the empire, depose Ferdinand and restore Frederick to first Bohemia and then the Palatine, though these plans were soon scaled back to include a mere restoration to the Palatine. Gustavus Adolphus agreed to the plans and it appeared as though the Swedish king, powered by English, Dutch and French money, was due to invade the empire with an army 40,000 men strong. The fact that the plans soon fell apart, just like the rest of the anti-Hausberg plans back then, did not reduce Christian's concerns. Geoffrey Parker in his book The Thirty Years' War notes that, quote, These developments thoroughly alarmed Christian, for Denmark's relations with Sweden were strained at this time because of alleged or real Swedish violations of the peace treaty of 1613, and he feared that if his rival were entrusted with a large army, perhaps supported by the Dutch fleet, the Baltic would be turned into a Swedish lake. Accordingly, in January 1625, Christian offered to intervene himself, provided England would lend 7,000 men to Denmark as part of an invasion force and dispatch a diversionary campaign in the Low Countries." End quote. Parker continues to describe how James I wished to include both Sweden and Denmark in the proposed Hague alliance between the major Protestant powers of Europe, 
but that both Mars of Nassau and the Netherlands and James I himself died in April 1625, postponing ideas of that nature for the moment. Nonetheless, Parker notes the decision of Christian IV, King of Denmark, to now go it alone. Quote, None of this deterred Christian. He pressed ahead on his own, rashly assuming the role of defender of the Protestant faith. Early in 1625 he entered the war in his capacity as Duke of Holstein, without having procured promises of political and financial support from anyone. End quote. History has painted Christian's intervention as one of a childish desire to better his Swedish rival, and yet it goes deeper than simply throwing himself into the conflict so that he could reap its intended benefits before his rival could, although the results of his lack of planning and failure to gather intelligence would manifest itself in a short while. Parker notes that, in defence of his decisions to invade the Empire, the military situation to Christian would have appeared, quote, disarmingly simple, the forces of the Catholic League and the Emperor were on the border of the Lower Saxon Circle. Only the French, in the Valteline, Mansfield, in the Netherlands, Bethlen Gabor, of Transylvania, and Charles Emmanuel of Savoy seemed prepared to take the field. Christian convinced himself that he must act before it was too late. End quote. G. Pages, in his book The Thirty Years' War, 1618-1648, when attempting to describe Christian's decision to intervene, pointed to his desire to acquire the bishoprics within Westphalia and Saxony for his sons, while also stating that Christian, quote, was driven by a distorted ambition that was out of all proportion to his strength, and he was distracted by the antagonism between the two Scandinavian kingdoms, his own and Sweden, which was aggravated by their rival frontier claims, for at all costs he did not want Gustavus Adolphus to appear in Germany, end quote. G. Page has also noted that, following the declaration of war, quote, When Christian IV crossed the Elbe, he did so with only 10,000 men. As Tilly's forces barely exceeded this, the two adversaries took care not to march against each other. Tilly claimed his only aim was to prevent the Lower Saxon Circle from levying troops, which he declared illegal because it had not been authorised by the Emperor. Christian affirmed that his only object was to prevent Tilly's army taking up its winter quarters in the territory of the Circle, which had not given its consent. The only result of these two abortive undertakings was that the North German plain, as far as the Elbe, was pitilessly ravaged by each side in turn. End quote. By replacing Gustavus Adolphus's offer for intervention with a more realistic one of his own, Christian had enabled the former to resume his war against Poland in spring 1625. Adolphus's success in the resumption of the war and his capture of the Polish ports of Mamel, Palau and Elbing, whose revenues together exceeded the entire revenue of the Swedish court up to that point, were a sign of things to come for the burgeoning Scandinavian superpower. But for now the spotlight turned onto Christian and what his plans were for the future campaigns of Germany. As the first ally not exclusively of German stock, his intervention suggested that Frederick's cause for the Palatine was about to receive the shot in the arm it so badly needed. However, his intervention and subsequent campaigns were stopped dead in their tracks by the emergence of a soon-to-be legendary general, who, having been given the approval of Ferdinand, raised an army at his own expense 
and led it towards Christian. Determined to represent only Ferdinand's interests, and loyal to him virtually to the end, this new commander would ensure the Habsburg cause reached dizzying heights of success, and he would cement his legend in the process, as perhaps the Habsburg's most successful general ever. His personal fortune would rise in line with his star, and the personal loyalty of his soldiers was comparable only to that of Gustavus Adolphus. His name was Albrecht Wenzel Eusebius von Wallenstein. The Danes, as a member of the Hague Alliance, would surely have expected aid from the other two Sinese, the Dutch and English. Yet, the Danish would stumble towards war virtually alone, thanks to the other Sinese participation in external affairs. Even despite that though, Christian's enterprise would surely have met with a great deal more success, had it not happened to coincide with Ferdinand's ace up his sleeve. Upon invading the empire, Christian's army was faced with the prospect of combating two large armies, one under the command of Tilly, known as the League Army, and another, now freshly recruited and paid for, under the command of Wallenstein. Geoffrey Parker explains the origins of the decision to create a new army under Habsburg control. Quote, Some reinforcement was all he desired, but to Ferdinand the matter was not so simple. In the first place, there were also rumours that Bethlehem Gabor of Transylvania was mobilising for another attack on the Habsburg heartland. Spain, which had offered help in the past, could spare no troops. On the contrary, of the 16 imperial regiments then in existence, six were in the Netherlands, assisting Spaniola's siege of Breda, and one was in Spanish Lombardy. There was not enough men to def- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Then Vienna, let alone reinforce Tilly. So on the 25th of April, 1625, Ferdinand signed a patent naming Albrecht of Wallenstein to be chief over all our troops already serving at this time whether in the Holy Roman Empire or in the Netherlands, and ordering him to create a field army, 
whether from existing units or from newly raised regiments, so that there be 24,000 men in all. End quote. Wallenstein is quite a character. He was essentially in the background for much of the action up to this point, and it almost seems as though he suddenly emerged from Ferdinand's pocket as a kind of secret weapon once the Danes invaded. Of course this isn't true, and upon closer inspection of the man, we can see that he was prominent in his defence of his native Bohemia from Bethlehem Gabor in late 1623. While as third of command at the time in the region, it stands to reason that he distinguished himself to get to that position. Indeed, though his military record is commendable, it is through his finances that his name really begins to achieve some real weight, and it is upon accumulating the necessary wealth to raise an army that he alone commands that his star rises even further. As payment for his services to the Emperor, he would receive lands such as the Duchy of Freeland from Ferdinand, as well as confiscated estates he had purchased at knockdown prices in Bohemia. These lands would become his main source of income for the next few years, and as his income grew, so did his ability to raise credit, whereupon he could get loans, whereupon he could become one of Ferdinand's most important lenders. Jeff Mortimer, in his book Wallenstein, The Enigma of the Thirty Years' War, notes on Wallenstein's accumulation of land, leading to further increases in power. Quote, During 1623, Wallenstein had also found other ways of improving his standing. First, he secured an imperial patent, joining many of his bohemian estates he had purchased to Friedland, and in January 1623, the emperor raised them to the status of a palatinate, conferring on Wallenstein the archaic but prestigious title rank of Count Palatine. Although not carrying with it a formal title, this gave him many of the powers of a prince, as well as valuable commercial rights within his territory, and it was a de jure recognition of what Wallenstein had already achieved de facto the creation of a virtual principality by the acquisition of so much land in a single block. More surprising was the Emperor's decision to elevate Friedland into an actual principality, thus giving Wallenstein the rank and title of Prince of the Empire. It was a rare honour and a major step upwards, which may in part have been a reward for Wallenstein's large loans to the Imperial Treasury, although political considerations were probably more important. Executions, expropriations and emigration following the collapse of the revolt had left a vacuum in the top levels of society in Bohemian Moravia, which Ferdinand was seeking to fill through the creation of a new aristocracy loyal to and dependent upon him personally. End quote. By ensuring his own steady forward promotion within the administration, Wallenstein became as indispensable to Ferdinand as Max of Bavaria, and he was soon to become more so. 1624 was the year of success for the Habsburgs, but it was also the year in which Wallenstein and Ferdinand could see the gathering storm. Mortimer explains the political situation in Europe at the time. Quote, the Habsburgs and their supporters were very much aware of the dangerous coalition gathering against them. Wallenstein in particular, with his new lands and titles at stake, was anxious that the adequate defensive measures be put quickly in hand leading him to repeat an earlier suggestion that he might recruit a larger military force for the Emperor. But this was not a specific proposal, and it was not taken up. Maximilian of Bavaria was equally anxious, and for the same reason. He too had done well out of the war, but his new possessions and his impressive status as an elector should the tide turn against the Imperialists. 
end quote. Ferdinand was beginning to believe that, even with the apparent ending of the German phase of the war, should the anti-Habsburg coalition materialise, relying solely on the League army was a recipe for disaster. We must remember that it would have been common knowledge throughout 1624 as to the plans of Frederick to mobilise Protestant Europe against the Habsburgs, and in particular, the plans which proposed Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden lead the invasion would have been rather scary. Furthermore, on more than one occasion, Max had told Ferdinand that his policies and plans for the empire would be secure, or at least easier to implement, if more men were available. In hindsight, Max likely expected Ferdinand to simply send these new forces to link up with Tilly's army, thus expanding Max's power and influence in the empire in the process. But Ferdinand had come to believe that he needed a force of his own, which answered exclusively to him, and whose loyalty he could count as unquestionable. The only problem was funds, and that was where Wallenstein came in. As a staunchly loyal imperialist, a militant Catholic, and someone whose newly acquired lands depended upon the maintenance of what had been achieved for Ferdinand thus far, Wallenstein was the perfect fit for what Ferdinand had planned. And just in time too, because in May 1625, Christian began the process of venturing out into the Lower Saxon Circle and cautiously waiting to see what Tilly would do next. Tilly, mindful of the possibility that Ernst of Mansfield and some army he had managed to conjure up was close by, hesitated also, as did Ferdinand in giving the orders. It was thus Max of Bavaria who ended the deadlock, ordering Tilly to advance into the Lower Saxon Circle in July 1625 and see if he could tempt Christian out. Limited skirmishing occurred, mainly because summer weather was especially bad that year, so that even though it took Wallenstein till October to meet up with Tilly outside Hanover, he hadn't missed all that much. By that time, the order of the day was locating winter quarters anyway, so it seemed to all as though 1625 was to be a year of little military consequence. The exact amount of men under Wallenstein's command at this stage is difficult to establish. According to Mortimer, he was allowed to recruit an army of 18,000 infantry and 6,000 horse. But by mustering, and then marching from Eger on the western extremity of Bohemia, it appears as though he was able to boast a far more swollen army than Ferdinand had originally authorised. As Mortimer notes, quote, Hence, he was able to write to the Spanish general Spaniola that he hoped to take the field in the coming spring with 50-something thousand men. An impressive number, although the quality of some of their officers was another matter causing Wallenstein to comment that if falcons were not available, he would have to hunt with ravens. End quote. Though Wallenstein had arrived just in time to defend any attacks from Christian, he arrived too late to coordinate a joint attack with Tilly. Mortimer notes that, quote, Instead, they united in time only to spend the winter skirmishing, looting the countryside, and eating the peasantry out of house and home, rather than achieving anything of military significance. End quote. Wallenstein thus began to plan the campaign in the spring, which he hoped would justify the creation of this new army now effectively at the mercy of his pockets. But the anti-Habsburgs were mobilising too. Christian of Denmark was the major new threat, but Ernst of Mansfield remained, as did Christian of Brunswick, who he encountered after his defeat at Statlon in August 1623. These latter two men planned to move their forces into Moravia and link up with Bethlen Gabor in Transylvania, 
in order to threaten Bohemia and Austria, and hopefully draw Wallenstein away from his position with Tilly. Mortimer explains that, although quite ambitious, quote, It was not a bad plan, and it also exploited the equally unpredictable tensions between Tilly and Wallenstein, the old and experienced general, and the younger, unproven leader of a new and unproven army. Rivalry over winter quarters had been the start, but there were also differences over strategy. Wallenstein wanted their forces to join up for a decisive attack on Christian early in the year, whereas Tilly preferred to play the waiting game, hoping to trap the Danes between them later in the spring. Wallenstein, closer to Christian's main army, was thus left at risk should the king move first and attack him in strength. The result was that while the generals were arguing the relative importance of possible lines of attack or defence, each seeking support on troops from the other, they lost the initiative and were forced instead to respond to the opening moves of their enemies. End quote. Indeed, the opening moves of 1626 appeared to spell disaster for the Tilly-Wallenstein alliance. 30 miles southeast of Magdeburg, a so far unassuming bridge had acquired a new level of importance, as Mansfield had made the decision to cross it, which would have brought him over the river Elbe and closer to entering Magdeburg, a city whose sympathies were expected to be Protestant. Not a bad judgement, considering what would transpire in later years. Mansfield attacked the bridge, not aware that Wallenstein, having understood its importance, had already heavily fortified it with a large garrison beforehand. Furthermore, while Mansfield camped on the north side of the bridge, planning to launch a head-on assault, Wallenstein passed troops into the woods on Mansfield's left flank. Mortimer explains that, quote, Presumably, Mansfield underestimated their number and strength, as he pressed on regardless launching a frontal attack on the fortifications early the following morning. Reports indicate that he made several unsuccessful attacks over the next three hours before Wallenstein ordered a counter-attack, which was followed by heavy and evenly balanced fighting on the open ground. At the critical stage, Wallenstein sent infantry reinforcements over the bridge, and the issue was then decided by a flanking cavalry attack from the wood. To add to the confusion of Mansfield's men, some of their gunpowder weapons exploded in the rear, so that the retreat quickly turned into a rout. Mansfield managed to escape with many of his cavalry, but most of the infantry were captured. End quote. Thus, Wallenstein's first success had been achieved, against the perennial loser Mansfield. I'm not exactly sure if this guy ever won a battle. I'm sure he must have at some point, but I've never come across one that cemented his reputation as a military leader. The reason for this was, Mansfield wasn't so prevalent in the early phases of the Thirty Years' War because he won consistently, but because nobody at that time was as good as raising an army from scratch, so long as the funds were incoming of course, as Mansfield was. The issues of raising armies, maintaining armies and moving armies and feeding armies were constant puzzles to be overcome by both sides at all times. It meant that the armies had to have a place where they could be billeted for the tough seasons. They had to have enough food for everyday living, that the horses have enough fodder, that the land could sustain them for as long as required. Remember when I mentioned the Ottoman Empire's vast army invading Hungary a few episodes back, but that the Sultan had ensured provisions existed in the region before leading his forces, 100,000 strong at the time, into Transylvania? I said to keep his example in mind, because he would look like the smartest person of the Thirty Years' War, compared to everyone else's march-then-eat philosophies. 
Well, even at this early stage, we're seeing the effects of it, and it'll only get worse. As armies increase in size and move over the same regions again and again, the demands placed on the countryside will prove too much. And when the cities that were passed over can no longer afford to pay off the soldiers and prevent them from camping near their lands, as a knock-on effect of the lands being ruined from soldiering anyway, the catastrophe, and one of the major reasons why the Thirty Years' War was so horrendous, will be realised. For Wallenstein and Tilly, though, the victory at Dessau Bridge on the 26th of April 1626 was exactly what they needed. In Wallenstein's case, he had finally got the win he could point to as justification for his raising and paying for the army in the first place. It was something for the politicians back in Vienna, basically, and as the years progressed, he'd have to do more and more to satisfy them. Tilly took the opportunity to press Christian of Denmark and tried to force him into a pitched battle, which finally occurred on the 27th of August 1626, after Tilly finally caught up with Christian's army and routed him utterly in the process. The defeat of Denmark's forces here at the Battle of Lutter completely shattered the promises to the Protestant princes who had sided with him, and many returned to Ferdinand's gracious understanding, they hoped, while Christian retreated back home. The problems continued as Bethlehem Gabor's campaigns in Transylvania didn't ignite as they had before, and he sued for peace never to bother the Habsburgs again. Before the year was out then, veteran mercenary for hire Mansfield died on his way to Venice, delivering a crippling blow to the Protestant cause in the process. Another Protestant commander and influential to die that year was Christian of Brunswick in June, at the ripe young age of 26 from wounds sustained while on campaign. Overall, the prospects for Christian in 1627 were not looking good. He was all alone, while his enemies in Tilly and Wallenstein each commanded armies, and Spignola had his watchful eye on things going on in the region too. It wasn't all rosy for the Habsburgs though, in particular Wallenstein was having trouble first maintaining his army financially, and also fending off the frequent bouts of painful gout that had proved so debilitating, it's hard not to feel sorry for the man. Just like everything else in the Thirty Years' War, his gout was only to get worse as the years went on, but at the beginning of 1627, it was bad enough to hold him up in Vienna until May. Mortimer explains what 1627 looked like, strategically, to Wallenstein. Quote, The strategic situation at the beginning of 1627 looked very similar to the year earlier. Christian of Denmark was rebuilding his army and could be expected back in the field in Lower Saxony, where Tilly was still stationed but with insufficient troops to confront him alone. Mansfield was gone but his army was likewise rebuilding in Silesia, while Transylvania appeared to present the usual threat, as at this stage Wallenstein could not know that Bethlehem would not fight again. More than offsetting this limited good news, in Wallenstein's view, was the growing threat from Sweden. Wallenstein was right to fear Sweden, for Gustavus had been immensely successful in his war against Poland, capturing the virtual entirety of the Baltic states, which provided his largely agriculturally based economy with a steady new income source, and enabled him to finance his veteran army by now one of the best trained and tested in Europe. In 1625, when the Protestant League had opted to throw their support behind Denmark instead of Sweden, Gustavus made war against Poland again. In 1626, he landed an army in Prussia, 
ignoring the protests of the elector of Brandenburg who owned it, and using the invasion instead as a chance to further threaten Poland's interests. Wallenstein viewed this phase of the Swedish-Polish war as potentially overlapping with his war against Denmark and friends. If Gustavus made the decision to turn his forces west after wrapping things up with Poland. So, Wallenstein was determined that Gustavus would be unable to wrap things up with Poland and keep Sweden distracted there long enough for Denmark to be defeated and then deal with Sweden if and when that bridge required crossing. Mortimer echoes this strategy. Quote, Gustavus's incursion was intended more to further his Polish campaigns than to position him for such an attack against the Habsburgs. But Wallenstein could not ignore the risk. For if Sweden were to enter the war before Denmark could be driven out of it, the threat to the imperial cause would be grave. Moreover, both countries were havens for Bohemian refugees, and indeed, Thurn, who commanded the forces of the Bohemian Revolt, was serving as a marshal and third in command of the Danish army. These exiles were waiting eagerly to join any advance into Habsburg territory, where their first aim would be to recover their confiscated lands, Wallenstein's purchases foremost among them. End quote. So Wallenstein put his plan for 1627 into action. It began with the creation of the largest army Europe had yet seen in that region, supposedly 100,000 men. When this insane number was raised, thanks mostly to Wallenstein's reputation as someone who would pay on time, though that reputation would soon come under threat, Wallenstein sent 40,000 of them into Silesia, one of the originally rebellious lands who had joined up with Bohemia all those years ago to secure them against Mansfield's leaderless remaining forces who were marching in and out of its crumbling fortresses. Many opted to join Wallenstein's employ rather than just return home further swelling his ranks. This army, now roughly 45,000 strong, now moved north to link up with Wallenstein's remaining force, Antilly. The stage was being set for a major assault on Christian's Denmark, and the soldiers wanted to be there when the time for plunder came. David Milland, in his book Europe at War, 1600-1650, notes on Christian's now dire situation. Quote, Christian was in no position to resist their joint attack. The Dutch had abandoned him as a bad investment. Charles I had defaulted on his promise to provide 30000 a month, and the English fleet, which might have rendered him invaluable assistance by entering the Elbe at Stade, had gone off to La Rochelle. In September 1627, therefore, Tilly and Wallenstein defeated Christian at Heiligenhafen, and opened a way north through Holstein and Schleswig to Jutland. End quote. Wallenstein has essentially ensured his campaign would not be interrupted by providing Sigismund of Poland with some extra forces for his war against Sweden, and had cleared Mansfield's soldiers out of Silesia so that the final big push into the Danish homeland could begin, without any threats from the rear. In the summer of that year, the Duke of Mecklenburg, one of Christian's few allies, was deprived of his lands and titles, and these were handed over to Wallenstein's now swollen portfolio. His income increased, Wallenstein paid his troops six months in advance, and appealed to his banker, Hans de Witt, to raise him sufficient loans so that he could do it again in six months' time. Wallenstein was preparing to take the entirety of Denmark. In October, Tilly was wounded and command passed solely to Wallenstein. It seemed as though his star could only rise higher.
His occupation of Jutland, essentially the part of Denmark connected to the European continent, in late 1627 to mid-1628, was achieved with rapid success against the outnumbered and beleaguered Danes, who were evacuated by boat to the islands which held the nation's capital. Seeing the situation that his country was in, that effectively 80% of it was now in the hands of the enemy, Christian showed remarkable fortitude and calm. He judged, correctly, that by ensuring naval superiority in the Sound, and by gaining the naval cooperation of his Protestant allies, particularly the Dutch, Wallenstein could make no further progress. Though the latter had accomplished an incredible feat, it did not evade Christian from the war and Wallenstein began to hear rumblings that his army was too big, a complaint supported by the primary source at this time, the Documenta Bohemica, which noted his army swelling from year to year, standing at 130,000 in 1628, and set to reach its peak at 150,000 by 1630, once it combined with Tilly's. Parker notes further problems Wallenstein was facing, by occupying such a large portion of foreign territory. Quote, Already in September 1628, Wallenstein warned Ferdinand, from his camp at Breitenberg and Holstein, that his presence was so unpopular that he could only continue to operate if he possessed such a large number of troops that they could coerce the native inhabitants into providing tribute at fixed rates every week. Wallenstein's advice to the emperor was to recruit and arm as much of the empire as possible. Only in that way, he argued, would territorial princes like Saxony be forced to remain loyal and give up any plans to call upon foreign support, or to offer assistance to the Palatine exiles. But it was simply not possible to continue troop-raising indefinitely. There were already too many men-in-arms for the Empire to support. And, on top of this, the Empire also had to pay for the forces of Spain and the Catholic League in the Northwest. End quote. In any event, Wallenstein recognised that in order to force Christian from his islands, the Habsburgs would need a fleet in the Baltic. The Spanish were too busy with their Dutch problems to spare any ships, so the task fell to a three-pronged approach. First, Sigismund of Poland was asked to aid the efforts, though he declined when he realised the plan had the possibility to increase Spanish power in the region at the expense of his own. Second, the towns and cities originally established under the Hanseatic League were approached with the idea of using their fleet, ending trade with the Dutch, and supposedly re-establishing themselves as the predominant power of the Baltic at the expense of the Dutch. All the Hanseatic League members had to do was forsake their Dutch, Danish and other Protestant agreements, and place their trust in the Habsburgs. This proved a step too far also, so Wallenstein turned to his final option, the more expensive Plan C, which involved the creation of a port and then an entire fleet. It may seem ludicrous now to us that the Habsburgs assumed they possessed the resources to create a fleet and then Baltic naval supremacy from scratch when they couldn't economically support their forces on land, but the Habsburg victories in the region had been very persuasive, and it was believed that with such a fleet, a whole new range of possibilities never before available would be open to the Habsburgs, and that this would make the whole enterprise more than worth it. It was in this spirit of optimism that Wallenstein was named Admiral of the Ocean and the Baltic in late 1627. Wallenstein also professed interesting plans to dig a canal between the Baltic and the North Sea so as to cut off Christian's sound toll revenues and starve Denmark economically. 
but these ideas remained a mere pipe dream. However, Wallenstein was persuaded to compromise his plans. The Habsburg fleet could be constructed by a port already in existence, and where better than Stralsund, Pomerania. The capitulation of Franzburg had been signed between the Duke of Pomerania, Bogoslav XIV, and Rep of Ferdinand II on November 27, 1627. As per the terms of the deal, Stralsund was to open its doors to the Habsburgs, allow a Habsburg garrison in, and Pomerania itself, having been invaded by Swedish troops already as a stop-off to the war in Poland, was to submit its territory to imperial occupation, for the sake of imperial security. Though Bogoslav agreed to this, he could not get his troublesome city of Stralsund, situated at a prime position in the northeast of Germany, to cooperate. In the beginning of the year 1628, as word got out that Stralsund was to be occupied by Wallenstein's forces as a jump-off to a Danish decisive blow, independent Protestant actions ensured that the city was well defended. Geoffrey Parker explains that, quote, no sooner had the siege begun, in May 1628, that seven companies of Scottish veterans in Danish service arrived, and 600 Swedes followed the same month. Together, these foreign troops beat off the imperialist assaults over the 27th to the 29th of June, and more reinforcements, Scottish, Swedish, Danish and German, poured in. The siege would be lifted on the 24th of July. End quote. In lifting this siege, Wallenstein suffered a pretty considerable setback. He had in fact very few options except to negotiate with Christian IV, because despite the fact that the latter's lands had been almost entirely occupied, he could still pose a danger as a wild card capable of landing forces on such short notice. Initially, he had left the issue of Stralsund to his officers, because it hadn't seemed like that big a deal, or at least it seemed like something they could handle but the situation escalated as more foreigners poured in, and the city's defences, which had been designed by Swedish engineers after all, were so impregnable that the thorn in the side of the Habsburgs that was Stralsund soon became a bleeding, infected, pus-filled sore that had to be patched up. So Wallenstein, mindful of how disgusting my metaphors would be, marched his entire army in force to Stralsund, in the hopes that such a demonstration of force would persuade the city to surrender but this failed. Wallenstein additionally was facing much pressure at home before the failure to take Stralsund, and after July 1628, the calls for Ferdinand to curtail his army and limit the damage became deafening. Half-hearted peace attempts were being made at Lübeck, you know, the kind where the reps essentially stall for time in the hope that their side can achieve a victory and they'll have more to bargain with. But these went nowhere. Wallenstein felt that he could not simply disband his army, so long as Ferdinand desired such harsh peace terms, and so long as Christian appeared willing to continue the fight. Christian faced problems too though, as Mortimer explains. Quote, Wallenstein was well aware that the severe terms being sought by Vienna and Munich were unlikely to produce a settlement, as Christian was as secure as before on his Danish islands, and moreover, his allies were belatedly rallying around him. 
The Danish council on the other hand, especially those with lands in occupied Jutland, were tired of what they regarded as Christian's personal war, in his capacity as Duke of Holstein, rather than Denmark's affair. Hence, Wallenstein used the lack of progress in Lübeck to press a more realistic approach on the Emperor, and he initiated secret diplomacy in parallel to the formal negotiations. In these private contacts, an agreement was reached whereby Christian would keep his lands in exchange for a promise to take no further part in German affairs. Together with the renunciation of his family's claims on the territories of various secularised North German bishoprics, this the Danish council successfully pressed upon Christian. The peace was finally signed at the end of June 1629. End quote. Christian's military experiment had cost him remarkably little physically, except for the financial cost, of course. What was more notable was the kingdom's loss in prestige. It was soon to be eclipsed by its neighbour and vassal of only a century before. Although Denmark was left with a debt of 6 to 8 million thalers, the real cost of the war would only be realised later on, when Sweden achieved all that Christian set out to achieve, and so much more. In the peace negotiations, a showing of joint Scandinavian unity in order to scare the Habsburg negotiators had materialised, chief among them Wallenstein, into believing that Christian's position was far stronger than it actually was. Gustavus was of course preoccupied with wrapping up his Polish campaign during negotiations, but the show of unity had the desired effect, and went a long way towards persuading Wallenstein that Denmark should be appeased within the peace treaty so as to ensure its total cooperation after the war. Indeed, even in the years before these negotiations, Christian received a letter from his former Swedish enemy. I now see with little difficulty that the projects of the House of Habsburgs are directed against the Baltic, and that by mixture of force and favour, the United Provinces, my own power, and finally yours, are to be driven from it. David Milland notes this fascinating period of history that proves so well that age-old cliché, in this case at least, the enemy of my enemy was my friend, even though for Christian, this new friend he had made as a result of this cliché had been his worst enemy for the past century. Milan noted, quote, After his defeats on the mainland, he had no other course to accept, and, since Stralsund stood on a triangular promontory connected by a causeway with the mainland, virtually surrounded by sea, the assistance of the Swedish and Danish fleets could prove critical to its survival. As the enemies of the Habsburgs commented gleefully, the eagle cannot swim. Wallenstein would need at least a year to construct his own fleet. The Hanseatic League refused to be committed at this stage, and Sigismund declined to transfer his squadron to Wismar until the Spanish fleet had entered the Baltic. End quote. This essentially explains why Wallenstein did in fact achieve an even-handed peace, considering the Danish losses, which ended up keeping Denmark out of the war for good. The Danish distraction was over, but Wallenstein's services and his immense army were still required. In the next episode, you'll understand exactly what Wallenstein's army was required for. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.5, The End of the 1620s, part 1. Thanks...
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.